I read you an email from the family ad advocate at Cedarway Elementary School, and um, by the time I walked off of the stage, we had four, I think four mattresses, um, two dressers, a bunk bed, a single over a full bunk bed, a full bed, and a single bed that people were offering. So just so, so cool. Um, and so when I called then Belin, who, who was at Cedar Way, on Monday and said, hey, here's what we have, and I had sent her an email as well, and just following up with you, she said, actually, one of the teachers from the school was so heartbroken over what was going on with this family that over the weekend, she got everything that the family needed from her circle and buy, offer up and buy nothing and all these things. So the need isn't there. And she said that funny enough, this morning I did a visit to a family that just, um, they're refugees here from Afghanistan. And they've been here about a month and a half. And the parents are in English school in the morning and dad works in the afternoon and evening to provide for the family. But they have nothing. They are sleeping on rugs. Um, and so I was like, she's like, I know that that's not what we asked about, but would people be willing to have things go to them? I was like, Belin, we just want to love people. And if you direct us towards that, we are in. And so I said, do they need bedding? And she said, no, 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 no. We can collect some used things. And I was like, how about we love them, like extravagantly, and we get everybody new bedding and blankets that are their own, and they're in packages. And she goes, Really? I'm like, yeah, that's like loving over the top, and that's what we want to be about. And so that was just a really beautiful thing. So on some day this week, I don't even know what day it was. It really doesn't matter, but this week we got to deliver to the refugee family, and mom was the only one home. And so I went with Belin, and then Tong Pham came with me, and he um, brought a trailer load, and we brought in this dresser that I, at, when we got to the third level with no elevators, I think he was going to die. <laughs> I, I, we were both like, do we need trauma counseling? We might need trauma counseling after this. Like, it was, it was beastly. And so, um, but this mom, she was just so grateful. And um, here's... Oh, you have it. So see those little cushions there? The Afghan rugs covered literally every centimeter of floor space in the home, which is just kind of how they do decor. And they eat their meals um, on these cushions here. It's not customary for them to have a table. So, you know, they didn't feel like they needed one. But they would also shift those cushions into the bedrooms. But they only have um, four of them. So... Anyway, all of that to say, this is their bedding and their dining room and their living room furniture. And so we bring the bunk beds in and the translators explaining it and um, we're, we're gonna leave and there are two things that happened. One, I, said, I kind of saw in the other room and I said, would you like another bed? We have another bed. And she says, oh no, we can buy, we can buy. And I was like, I, I don't think that you can. Like, in so what happens with refugee families? Um, they come in and they get six months worth of rent and they're put up in these apartment complexes. But after six months, the rent stops and you have to figure out how to pay. And so we're like, put that towards the rent that is coming 
let us do this for you. And so we're going to deliver a second set of bedding and a full-size bed um, for mom and dad as well. So, so mom's like, oh, thank you, thank you. So just the heart of gratitude was off the charts. Um, not an entitled feeling. That happens sometimes, and this was not present there. Um, but she said, wait, 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 as we were going to leave. And okay, so she tells the translator something on the phone, and the translator says, she would like to feed you juice and snacks. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Like, I felt like I was, you know, being treated as the queen or something, but her heart was towards hospitality and just doing something that she could to love us well, and we didn't end up taking her up on the offer for juice. But um, just so sweet. And so what I want to pass along to you guys is just a thank you. Um, when you give to Brickview, it allows us to have the freedom to go over the top like that. And sometimes it's in those very tangible needs where you're just passing something forward, maybe something that um, you know you could use, but it's better used somewhere else. And then other times it's just generous um, cash money that you're giving. And so we can look into those accounts and say, we're going to buy all new bedding, and we're going to have soft blankies, and we're going to do a, a, a throw pillow even and go over the top and make this um, look like home for these, these kids that are transitioning. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. What a sweet gift and a joy it is. And Belin said, I said, Belin, if you have needs like this, we really want to know about them. And she's like, but you already do so much. And she goes, do you have a big church or something? And I said, no, we're little, but we're generous. And that's what God asks us to do is to be generous with all that we have. And so when you give us an opportunity to do that, to live love um, in tangible ways, it, the blessing is so huge for all of us. And so we thank you for bringing that to us. She's like, hmm, like, so this is not a Christ follower, and it's just cool to share the story of Jesus and the why behind what we do and how we do it. And so from the bottom of my heart, again, thank you, thank you, thank you. And with that in mind, we get to go to Cedar Way again on Tuesday. We have our regular monthly food distribution, um, and that is a lot of produce and diapers and wipes and feminine supplies. Um, and then we also deliver to Vision House to stock their residence store. And so thank you for what you're doing for the way that you show up in those ways with tangible ways of living love. And every once in a while, we get the opportunity to share the why behind what we do. And we're ready for that opportunity when it comes. So um, thank you for equipping us for that. Um, what's next? So Ecuador family mission trip. Um, that is going to happen in August 2024. We had an interest meeting on Friday night. It was really cool. And if you would be interested in traveling with us, there's an informational meeting on Sunday, February 18th from 3 to 4 o'clock. Last week, we had the wrong number on the text alert. So some poor bloke got the word trip <laughs> one too many times, I'm sure. <laughs> So we've corrected that, and if somehow you were lost in the shuffle wondering, I said trip, why isn't anyone getting back to me? This is the right number, and we will get back to you. I'm so, so sorry. Um, but we would love to give you information, talk to you. We know that Ecuador has been in the news regarding safety, um, and this is a family trip. And so, of course, we want to talk about that. 
and share um, we are going to be in a region that is unaffected by the gang violence that's going on over there. So if you're interested at all, you want some more information, please would you make it a point to come to this meeting here. And then if that's impossible for you, but you're still interested, will you please connect with me at either at this number, you can just text it, or you can send an email to the church as well, and that will come to me, or even fill out your Connect card. And for those of you watching online, fill out the online Connect card. Um, it's going to be really fun. I'm super excited about God, what God might do. Um, not just like so often you go on a trip going, yeah, I'm going to help the world. That is a small part of it. But more than anything, it transforms us. And there's a beauty in the prep and the planning and the going and being together and centered in Christ as we do it. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Another thing I'm looking forward to is Ignite, which is our family meeting. It happens the very last Sunday of this month, so the 25th of February. And we're excited to gather together and share a little bit about things that are going on around here. But more than that, to share the story of God and how he's moving among us. That is one of my favorite things that we get to do at Ignite. And there is child care available for that for kids that are old enough to watch a movie, hop in their pajamas, get their little snuggly, um, and um, so that you can be here and they can be next door as well. I did mention that Connect card, the online communication card. Fill those out, and that's it. Did you guys catch that Jen called some gentleman in our community a bloke? <laughs> she did. So we've been watching Australian TV, and it just goes to show what, what goes in comes out. Shortly after the voyage of Christopher Columbus to America, there was a brilliant mind back in Europe named William Tyndale. And Tyndale was a linguist and a professor at Cambridge University. So as a linguist, he was fluent in both Greek and Hebrew, the two primary languages of the original texts of the Bible. So Tyndale was one of the few humans in England able to read the Bible for himself. And he was so taken by it that he came to believe something radical, that it should be translated into languages that people actually speak. Now, this is like a no-brainer for us, but in England at the time, it was illegal to translate the Bible into English. 
So Tyndale fled to Germany to join the Reformation movement, and there he translated the text into English for the first time. And with the backing of a wealthy benefactor and this crazy new technology called a printing press, um, Tyndale smuggled 18,000 Bibles back into England. Suddenly, followers of Jesus would hold secret meetings in homes where they'd find somebody who was literate, which was a bit of a rarity, and in a hush, they'd listen to the Bible read to them in English. So picture it. They are hearing the Bible in their language for the first time because before, all the, before that, all that they had ever experienced was the Catholic Mass, which was in what, what language? Latin. So an ancient language that nobody spoke anymore except for the priests. So in fact, all that they knew of the Bible was the Latin Mass and whatever images happened to be on the stained glass portraying the gospel stories and so forth. Now, King Henry VIII found out about Tyndale's Bibles, and he was enraged because he was in cahoots with the Catholic Church and trying to control the whole thing. And so through a covert source, he bought up 6,000 copies, and he had them burned on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Can you imagine burning Bibles on the church steps? That's how far gone it was. So King Henry then enacted a new law saying that Tyndale's Bibles were to be destroyed upon contact and anyone found with one was to be immediately put to death. Eventually, Henry sent a spy across the English Channel to befriend Tyndale and to betray him, and Tyndale fell for the ploy. He was arrested, and he refused to recant under torture, and so he was burned alive. Witnesses to his execution report that his last words were a prayer. God, open the king of England's eyes. Famously, a few years later, King Henry changed his mind and allowed the Bible to be translated into English for all to read. Now, all of this raises a question. What is it about these ancient writings? Why, why were some of the greatest luminaries in human history willing to suffer and die to make it available for people like you and me to read it. And, and some of the most powerful leaders of, of history willing to kill and destroy just to keep it out of your hands. Why is it that, that so many of the great empires of history, from the Roman Empire to the British Empire to Nazi Germany to Soviet Russia, have all put censorship bans on the Bible and its teachings? What is it about this collection of ancient writings that it's such a threat to those in power and yet so compelling to so many? And that in turn raises another question. What exactly is the Bible? So we're in this series, thinking back to last week, we're in this series thinking about hearing God amidst all the noise. Because in our world, there's, there's so many voices, there's so much distraction. So how do we tune out what needs tuning out, and how do we tune into the voice of God? And we said last week that for an apprentice of Jesus, that's going to involve a life immersed in Scripture. The challenge is that in our culture, the Bible is coming under more and more suspicion. I mean, the, the broader culture is increasingly hostile to it, as we know. But as I mentioned last week, even among those that love Jesus, there's a growing resistance and skepticism toward the Bible. 
many now see the Bible as more of an obstacle to faith than an aid to it. I mean, you guys, I, I, I know a ton of followers of Jesus that are like profoundly drawn to Jesus, and they are inspired by his life and his teachings and the things that he said and the things that he did and his love and his sacrifice, and they find Jesus deeply compelling, but the Bible, not so much. And yet I suspect if, if this is you in some way, it puts you in a place of tension because at an intuitive level, we know that Jesus and the Bible, they like come together. Right? And I would argue that there is no version of legit apprenticeship to Jesus that does not have a central place for the Bible and does not read the Bible as Scripture. So what I want to do today is kind of piggyback off of where we were last week and just address this question today. What exactly is the Bible? And I want to launch into today's conversation with a scene from Luke 4. This is Luke 4, picking up in verse 14. Says Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So Jesus was a rabbi, and he would teach. So he would show up to a synagogue on the Sabbath day, and as a rabbi, he would be invited to speak. So he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So part of the custom of synagogue was a long reading from Scripture. But notice, Jesus was not handed like the Old Testament as a book. He was only handed the scroll of Isaiah. Question, why not the whole Old Testament as a book? Well, because the scriptures only existed on scrolls. And each part of the Old Testament had its own separate scroll. Okay, continuing on. Unrolling it, okay, the scroll of Isaiah. He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. So a rabbi, when they had something really important to say and they were about to teach on something, they would do it from a sitting position. So this is a cue to everybody. He's about to teach on this sacred ancient text. And it says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. I bet they were. Can you imagine like being able to hear a teaching of Jesus? So much better than this one. <laughs> Don't laugh. You're, you're supposed to say, no, Jason, you're really good. Just as good as Jesus. Okay. Uh, he began, okay, his teaching on the text he just read from Isaiah. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And we looked at that word fulfilled last week. It's the same word he used at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where in Matthew 5 he said, I I did not come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures but to fulfill them. And the idea is that the story of the scriptures, okay, the entire Old Testament, which is what was available at the time of Jesus, would come to pass in and through Jesus. So notice, because this says a, a ton about what the Bible is and also about what the Bible isn't. 
Jesus reads a prophetic oracle from the 8th century B.C., okay? He reads, in his day, an 800-year-old poem as if it's a story in search of an ending, and he sees himself as the fulfillment to the plot of that story. So today I want to address the question, what exactly is the Bible? And there are a, a lot of things that we could say, a lot of definitions of it that would be true and would be good. A while back, a few years back, I came across a, a short definition that I, I love. Um, and we looked, we looked at this a couple years ago, but I want to revisit it today because I think it's super relevant to where we're at in this series. And so here it is. Here's the definition. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. Okay, this is a simple and yet I think extremely profound definition. And today, I, what I want to do for today is just walk through this one piece at a time. So part one, the Bible is a library of writings. So often we think, we think of and refer to the Bible as a book. It's the good book where we discover the man upstairs. If you're a country, country fan. <sighs> we refer to it as a book, which makes sense, because it's like all bound up and put together and we hold it in our hands like a book. But it's actually far more accurate to think of it as, as a library. Did you, you know, it, it wasn't put together the way that it is now, like a, a book where a person could hold the whole thing in their hands until about 1,500 years after Jesus. Like, it took the English Reformation, it took Tyndale and the technology of the printing press, and for literacy to become more widespread. Prior to that, the biblical scrolls were kept in something, they were always kept in something resembling a library. And more often, they were contained on 24 separate scrolls, which, one of which was Isaiah that Jesus read from that day. So for us, it, it's way better to think of the Bible as a library than a book, because if we do, it changes the way that we approach it. Like, you come at a library, like Seattle Public Library or Muckleteal Library or there's a Briar Library, I believe. It's really good, yeah. Uh, whatever it is, whatever library, I'm getting sidetracked, we come at a library with a very different set of expectations and assumptions and tactics for engaging it than we do a book. A book usually has, like, one genre of literature, right? It's... It's usually it's a novel, or it's memoir, or it's poetry, or it's a textbook, or it's history. A library has it all. A book usually has one author. A library has many writings by many authors. A book is, is written in a specific time and culture. A library has works spanning vast times and cultures. And so in reality, the Bible was written by many different authors who employed a wide variety of literary genres, their writings spanned well over a 1,000-year period. Think about that. From the, beginning to, from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament, over a 1,000-year period, it spanned vast locations, cultures, and even multiple languages. So when we approach a library containing a wide variety of literature, we adopt different strategies for reading depending on the literary genre, right? You would read a nonfiction work on World War II very different very differently than like Walt Whitman or Robert Frost poetry, right? I hope so. 
You'd read a physics textbook very differently from the Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, you'd read Dr. Seuss very differently from a classic by Charles Dickens. With all these literary works, they are, they're all intended to convey some kind of truth, but they each do it in a different way. And so we intuitively approach them using different tactics, and this is obvious, and we do it instinctively in a library. But, it, but if we see the Bible as a book, and we don't take a library approach to it, then if we encounter various kinds of literature, we don't adopt tactics. If we, we, we end up trying to read it all like it's a science textbook or all of it like it's a history book, our interpretations are going to get really strange really fast. And we're bound to get some bizarre ideas. So it might be easier to see it as a library, like if it was all contained in separate scrolls. Then we could easily feel that it was written by dozens of authors, and they all employed different sorts of literary genres, history, biography, poetry, prophecy, allegory, symbolism, right, parables, apocalyptic literature, personal letters, and on and on. There's even more. And you guys, here's, if you're wondering, I am convinced the whole Bible is true. Okay, the whole Bible is true. It all conveys truth, every bit of it. But to mine the depth of that truth well, it's vital that we read each part according to its genre, right? That we read it as the author intended it to be read. So let me, let me just give you an example. A while back, Jen was teaching uh, the Brookview kids, and she was teaching on the parable of the rich fool from Luke 12. And um, she read the story, and then the kids, one of the kids started getting upset. So let me read you the story. We'll see if this makes you upset. Luke 12, and verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, Jen probably read this in a much more child-friendly uh, <laughs> translation. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but it is not rich toward God. So after reading this parable to the kids, one little girl was disturbed. And so she raised her hand and she asked, is that a true story? Did that really happen? And she was upset that the man in the story died. Okay, so Jen said, oh, that's a good question. What do you guys think? And she let the kids wrestle through it and discuss it. And the consensus of the kids was, Jesus never lied, so it must be a true story. One little boy even tacked on, because the Bible is the word of God, it's all true. And the consensus of the kids was, that literally happened. 
And that's when Jen stepped in and, and explained to them the idea of parables. Okay, but this is what happens when we don't read according to literary genre. Jesus didn't intend to communicate this as literal history. It's a parable. But if we don't read it in view of its literary genre, it's easy to kind of misunderstand the point. And so, so here, I bring this up because sometimes people will ask me as a pastor, they want to know like, well, what kind of a pastor are you? Like, what kind of a Christian are you? What kind of church do you have? You know, are you good or bad? <laughs> you know, are you, are you, are you a Bible-believing pastor or not? And so here's what they say. Tell me, pastor, do you read the Bible literally or metaphorically? What? That's not even a good question. Because the Bible has a ton of both. Okay, the literary genre needs to determine the, the approach that we take. What was the author intending to convey and what literary conventions were employed to convey it? I mean, we, we need to consider each part of Scripture according to its genre because the Bible is not a book. It is a library of writings, okay? And next, that are both divine and human. So I, I referenced a verse last week that gives us kind of an insight into Jesus' view of Scripture. One time Jesus quoted a verse from the Old Testament this way. He said, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, and then Jesus quotes David's words from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus doesn't read the Old Testament as a human invention, right? He doesn't introduce this scripture by saying, you know, David, speaking his own opinions, or David, making crap up, or David, with his narrow view of God and built-in prejudice, but he also doesn't read it like it's some sort of like mindless dictation. Like when David woke up from his trance, there was drool on the papyrus and a word from God was there and it said, no, he says, David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit. He sees it as like this beautiful divine human collaboration. So the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human. And theologians often call this like the incarnational model of Scripture. In other words, the same way, in the same way that Jesus was not just divine or human, but he was actually divinity and humanity in the same place, Scripture is both God-breathed and a work of humanity, right? It comes through a human biographer or a poet or a historian or whatever. So Peter captures the dual nature of Scripture in his letter to the churches. Here's what he says. He says, for prophecy, and he, by that he means Scripture, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, in the original Greek, the phrase carried along is a word, it's actually a word picture of like a sailboat in the wind. So he's saying, what he's, what he's, the picture he's painting is that the human author sailed along by the wind of the Holy Spirit. Last week, we looked at what Paul, what Paul wrote. He said, all scripture is what? God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Paul says, Scripture is God-breathed. What does that mean? 
I mean, how can Scripture be both divine and human? Well, give me some latitude because I'm going to illustrate. This is about to get irreverent. Are you ready for it? Okay. Okay. Growing up, you guys, you guys know I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And being the the absolute pagan that I was, my favorite band as a kid and as a teen through high school, college, even, I mean, like fourth, fifth grade, you guys, my my favorite band, pre-Jesus, and not that I don't still like this band, I do, even post-Jesus, okay? Favorite band was (laughs) ACDC. An Australian rock band that formed in the year of my birth, 1973, and the calling card for ACDC was its lead guitarist, Angus Young. And he was famous for his schoolboy outfit that he would wear on stage and the way that he would skip across the stage when he was rocking out. Okay, but Angus was the face of ACDC, which is weird because usually it's the lead singer, right? But not ACDC. In fact, the lead singers had to change over time Um, But it was Angus that was the face of the band. Actually, over the years, except for Angus, I I looked this up this week on Wikipedia, he was the only person that was consistently in the band the entire time. Um, Everybody, all the other members changed. He was the one constant. So he would create these and create and perform these just, in my opinion, like scintillating guitar riffs. Okay? And I remember in, in 1990... Um, my senior year was 1990-91. Any other 91 grads in here? Yep, okay. So, <laughs> for me, that's the, the song that, like, defined my grad year that I just, like, rocked my face off all year was Thunderstruck. And um, I, you guys, I remember from the first time I heard it, just it, the build on that thing, it gave me chills. And I was still playing baseball, Right, so I had my Walkman with my <laughs> tape in it. And it, you guys, it is, uh, it is hands down, this is, not even, this is not even debatable. It is the greatest pregame pump you up song of all time. <laughs> and I was, I was in high school and then in, and then in college. And when it, I, you guys, I must have listened to that song. I, th- I had to like buy three tapes because I wore them out. Um, and some of you, if you're millennial you know, or Gen Z, you're like, what do you mean you wore it out? Go do some research. Okay, so <laughs> the intro to that song would just transport me to another world. Um, you guys know what I mean by that? Does anybody else like that song? Oh, my gosh. Let's go. Herb, I see you, brother. <laughs> okay, so what I want to do is I want to show you the intro to that song. This is ACDC at River Plate in Buenos Aires, Argentina in 2009. There are almost 200,000 people. Argentinians at this concert getting their faces rocked off. Okay. (laughs) You guys, that just happened. ACDC in church. Let's go. (laughs) So, okay, it's reasonable. Some of you might be thinking, what does any of this have to do with the Bible? Okay. Okay, here we go. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human, Paul says that the scriptures are God-breathed, okay? How in the world does that work? What is that like? Here's what it's like. It's like music that is played by a highly skilled musician. 
Okay, when you hear it coming into your ear, is the music from the instrument or the musician? The answer is yes. <laughs> right? It's coming from both. Okay, so with Thunderstruck, is that riff coming from Angus or his guitar? Both. And whenever brilliant music is played, and that is brilliant music, I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> Whether it's on violin, guitar, piano, saxophone, okay, the recorder. <laughs> what, what you're hearing is both the musician and the instrument. Okay, so there's an intelligence and artistry and skill and a will and creativity that is coming from outside the instrument, but it comes through the personality of that instrument. In other words, the instrument always stays true to itself. Like, think about like Jimi Hendrix, the great Jimi Hendrix. Even Jimi Hendrix never made a guitar sound like a pipe organ. Okay, his guitar sang with sound, but it was still a guitar. It didn't just suddenly become like a violin or an oboe or a trumpet in his hands. Okay, in the same way, the Bible is a library of writings that are divine and human. So the breath of God flows through the instrument, through the writer, like Louis Armstrong's breath through a trumpet. Okay, the trumpet makes sweet music that is still true to a trumpet. There is an intelligence and artistry and skill and will that's coming, that's coming through from outside the instrument, but it comes through the personality of that instrument. Okay? Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed. In other words, God breathed through the instrument that was Moses or David, right, or Matthew or Luke or Peter or Paul to make the sound of Scripture. Okay, so the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human. It's a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story. The Bible contains various genres of literature and a whole host of, like, micro-stories. But through it all, there's one central unified story being told. In the beginning of the library, it says, in the beginning, and the second to last line of the library reads, I am coming soon. The Bible is one panoramic, unified story. And if you miss this, if you don't read it that way, you can get lost in any given micro story. Um, the late Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller once said, the reason for our confusion over the Bible is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got to its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story. Now, this is, this is the great challenge in teaching the Bible to kids, like in a kid's program, right? How do you, you take stories like David and Goliath or the story of Esther or story of Noah, these incredible works of literary art that contain complex theology, 
but that in many published children's curriculums get reduced to a one-point lesson that usually has something to do with obey your parents. <laughs> which, is a, which is good. That's a good lesson. But you guys, this is, this is why I'm so grateful for like Emily Callan and for Jen and others because they are brilliant at putting the heart of Scripture into kid language. And that is not easy. Because when you think about it, these stories are deep, sophisticated literary insights into the nature of, of the human condition, into the nature of God, and into the nature of reality itself. And this is why sometimes the Bible's like really hard to understand. And why at times it feels like if, you, if you're in one of the micro stories, it just feels so strange. Many of the stories don't have a, a tidy little moral takeaway for us. They're complex, and they, they go in all kinds of weird directions. And for many of us, we are not used to stories like this. I mean, people who are like in the business of story, like authors and movie makers, etc., they sometimes differentiate between two different kinds of, of story plots. First, you have what could be called a commercial plot. Okay, whether film or literature or TV, here's the idea. The, you, you have the, the author has a main character, and you're rooting for them. And they just throw problems at them. And they're down, but they rise back up. And they overcome adversity to do something great. This is Luke Skywalker <laughs> rising up to, ve- to defeat Vader, right? This is William Wallace uniting Scotland to resist English oppression. This is the Hunger Games. This is Harry Potter. This is pretty much every Marvel movie. Okay, this is Shawshank Redemption. This is most sports movies. Okay, you guys, this is Rudy. You guys know Rudy? This is Rudy who just wanted to play football at Notre Dame. And everyone, especially his father, oh, the father wound, especially his father said he could never do it. But he studied, and he studied, and it was hard. And he studied, and studied, and studied. And after years, he got into Notre Dame. And then somehow, he walked onto the football team, and he got his rear kicked every day in practice. Practice after practice for a couple of years without any hope of ever getting into a game. But for the last play of his senior year, the team was way ahead. And so the team started to chant, Rudy, 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 and then the crowd picked up on it, right? And they're like, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. And the coach uh, caved under the pressure. He didn't want to put Rudy in, but he caved under the pressure. And he put Rudy in. He put him in at linebacker. And on the last play of the last game of the last of the season, he made the tackle, and the crowd goes nuts. <laughs> you, it's a really good movie. <laughs> okay, commercial plot. There's also something that is called a, a literary plot, which is more about the inner journey. It's complex, nonlinear, and the ending is often a letdown. Like, you, when you get to the end of a novel with a literary plot, it, it doesn't end, it's just the last page. <laughs> and you're kind of, it's like, you, you're stuck, you're like, but what's going to happen? And it's just over. And it's vague. Sometimes it's hopeful, but it's, it's all unclear. Here's the thing. Most of the stories in the Bible are not commercial plots. 
We love the ones that are, the commercial stories, right? Like David and Goliath. But even then, here's what we do. We pluck them out of their context and isolate them from the rest of the story. Have you guys read the story of David's life? Like from beginning to end? It is not a commercial story. It's not a commercial plot. Okay, so after Goliath, he, he lives for years in hiding under persecution from King Saul. Eventually, after years and years of waiting and you don't know what's going to happen, he becomes king and he, initially he does great stuff. Like he brings justice to the kingdom and he points the whole nation back to God. But after time, he gets bored and he loses his way. And he takes his gaze off of God and he puts his gaze on who? Bathsheba. There's a story for the children. <laughs> Wait, so Bathsheba, did they get in the water? To, you know. so, so he takes his gaze off of God, puts it on this w- married woman, and he has an affair. Then she gets pregnant, and so then he just, and the husband wasn't around because he was off at war fighting for David. So David decides to commit murder to cover it up, and he takes this woman as her, his wife. We don't know if that was consensual even or not. And it all leads to all this dysfunction because now he's got multiple wives, and eventually one of his sons rapes his half-sister, David's daughter, And David doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't give her justice at all. So his other son completely loses respect and he turns on David and he tries to take the kingdom from David and they go to war. And David's army is victorious and David's son, Absalom, is killed. And when David gets word of his fallen son, of Absalom's death, he falls down weeping, which is a real turnoff to his officers who are celebrating the victory of their war, who risked their lives fighting for David, and so he loses their respect. I mean, there's all this violence and and political violence and chaos, and in the very end, at the very end of his life, David is sleeping next to a young woman, and as an old bitter man, he's calling for his son Solomon to get his revenge on an emotional wound from decades before. For some reason, we don't read those parts to the children. (laughs) Now, why are so many stories in the Bible like this? Like unclear, non-climactic, complex, a bit of a bummer. Because life is like this. Real life is not a commercial plot. Real life does not feel like a Marvel movie. If it does, you have not reached adulthood yet, and it won't last. <laughs> I, I'm, just here to, I'm just here to encourage you all. <laughs> you guys, from the inside, life mostly feels like a literary journey. Okay, but here's the good news. While many of the micro-stories in Scripture end tragically, While many of the micro-stories are confusing and unresolved, the macro-story of Scripture is not unresolved at all. It points us to hope. It points us to a Savior. It points us to new life and healing and redemption. And that leads us to the final piece of our definition. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. 
So we read last week where Jesus said to the Pharisees, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And he's like, but you won't come to me. You're missing the whole point. Uh, Maybe you've come across the old adage, you know, in the Bible, Jesus is on every page. And there's, there's some truth to that. But it can also be a little dangerous because people try to turn every little story into allegory or a secret, like, predictive code about Jesus in some way. And somehow it's all, like, secretly about Jesus. And it can lead to all sorts of really weird interpretations and strange things. Okay, but, but what's right about that impulse is that every single page of Scripture is a literary step in the direction of Jesus. Like, even in all of the brokenness. And this is what we need to understand about the brokenness. Every page is a step toward Jesus coming to make all things new. So when you look at the larger unified story of the Bible, you realize Jesus is the center of not only the library of Scripture, but of reality itself. Like, everything else orbits around Jesus. So what, what is the Bible? The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. Okay, if that's what the Bible is, then what is the Bible for? Well, last week we said we we read Scripture not just for information, but for what? For formation. Okay, so we, we read it not just to know stuff. We read it to hear God's voice and to be changed. So if we come at it, Uh, not just to use it to help us achieve our goals, if we come at it not just looking to find in it what we already believe to show why we're right and all those other people are wrong, but if we come to it with open hands and an open heart, then the Holy Spirit is now free to transform us through Scripture. And, And with that goal in mind, Scripture engages us through the power of story, right? And, and stories, it turns out, like, they really, really matter. And here's what I mean. A- as human beings, we're all living by some story. We hold to some story, some kind of narrative by which we make sense of and find meaning in the complexity of human existence. We're all predisposed to ask the biggest human questions, like, who are we? What does it mean to be human? What is the meaning and purpose of life? What's gone wrong, and, and how do we fix it? And all of those are questions of story. Now, historically, the word used to describe the stories we all live by is religion, which is a word that's fallen out of favor in our culture, right? Most of us think of religion as belief in God or belief in the supernatural, but that's, it's not an academic definition because that definition is too narrow. It, and it, it doesn't even work on some of the world's largest, most popular religions. For example, Buddhism. It doesn't really even have a category for God. Buddhism isn't about a personal God or the supernatural. It's more like self-help for life. So here's a better definition for religion. Again, this comes from the late Tim Keller. He says, religion is a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things human beings should spend their time doing. You guys, by that definition... Followers of Jesus are most definitely religious. But so are agnostics and Buddhists and atheists and Darwin Martini, uh, Darwinian materialists 
and progressivism and social activism and careerism, uh, they are a type of religion. They are stories to make sense of who we are, what life is about, what's wrong, how do we fix it, and what's the point of life. The question is not, do we have a story or are we religious? The question is, what story or religion do we live by? According to Tim Keller's definition, you guys, everyone is religious. Everyone lives by some kind of story. Everybody does. So let's just recognize the story you trust and live by will shape the person you become. And this is where the Bible comes in. Consistent interaction with Scripture reshapes the story we live by. When I, when I go to Scripture time and time again, I'm reminded. I'm just reminded again and again. Even if I'm not hearing or learning something brand spanking new, I'm reminded, oh yeah, this is the story. This is what it means to be human. This is how the world works. This is who God is. This is the kind of stuff that matters most. This is the story that I'm being invited by Jesus to live into. And so how do we let the story of Scripture form us? Well, we come to it with the right heart posture, which we talked all about last week. Open, teachable. But also, we come to it consistently, and we come to it in different ways. I mean, so often when we think of engagement with the Bible, there are so many followers of Jesus have a very narrow view of what that looks like. Just envision like sitting by ourselves in the quiet, right? You guys, that is a very American way to think about it. I mean, prior to Tyndale, and actually even many years after that, nobody had a copy of the scriptures to read for themselves. In the time of Jesus, that's what synagogue was for. It was scripture in the context of community. Nobody had their own library, their own personal library with all the scrolls in it. Those were at synagogue. And so they'd come together in community on the Sabbath and other days of the week to discuss them and read them and think about them. You know, like the 20-minute morning quiet time of scripture, it wasn't really a thing for them. I mean, sure, they memorized scripture and they recited it and they prayed and, and all of that, but most of their interaction with Scripture was done in community, in discussion with, uh, with believers that had all sorts of different levels of maturity and different insights into it. It had to be. And even, even by the time of Tyndale, most people were illiterate. So even after there was an English translation of the Bible, most people engaged and encountered it in community. Now, that doesn't mean, please don't hear me saying, we shouldn't like read the Bible on our own. Please don't hear me saying that. Okay, we should, we, now that we have access to it, we can do that. We should do a lot of that. But historically, most people have interacted with Scripture in community. And it's helpful to recognize that there are a lot of different ways to engage Scripture. Uh, you engage it when you come to church, right? Or when you watch online. There's, there's a reading of Scripture and there's an explanation of it. Hopefully, that's the basis of sermons here. Yes? Okay, I hope so. Also, you, you engage it when you listen to worship music that's based on it, whether it's actual words from directly from Scripture or just ideas that are put into different words. In fact, that can be like super deep and meditative and uh, really personal engagement with it where you let the, the truth of, of a certain idea just sink down into your soul. And it happens through music, through a catchy tune. You engage it when you 
you read and you talk about it in, in your life group or your ID group. You, you can listen to podcasts or read books about particular scriptural topics that help you understand it and, and let that sink in and on and on. Um, you guys know, you guys know very well that one of my favorite new ways to let the story of scripture fill me and let it saturate my mind and heart and imagination is to watch the Bible Project. Yes. Um, and f- the beauty of the Bible Project for me is that it really does view the Bible using our definition as a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. So while the videos teach on a variety of topics, some are just on a particular book of the Bible and kind of giving you the background for it. Others are on topic, like they're topical. While the the videos teach on various topics, they're always set within the macro story of Jesus and redemption and what God's doing in the world. So here's what I'm going to do. Instead of closing today's message with a prayer, I'm going to close this with a very short, less than three-minute Bible Project video on the Holy Spirit. And I just want you, what I want you to do is allow yourself to take in the macro story of the Bible. Now, this video focuses on the person and the activity of the Holy Spirit and how God is present in our world from creation to the new creation. Um, and this is just like one angle on the macro story through the, through the idea of what the Holy Spirit is and does. But this is a story of Jesus that we are all invited to live in and to live out. And our world, the thing is, our world has many stories on offer. It has many religions. Again, a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things human beings should spend their time doing. Jesus came to give definitive answers to those really important questions. 